Hi, I'm Pastor Adam, and you're listening to the Orange United Methodist Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, that wants to help you find your place in God's story. And we hope this sermon can guide you along that journey. Visit orangemethodist.org to find out more information about location, service times, upcoming events, and ways to give. We hope you enjoy. The word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God indeed. Thank you, Vale, once again for sharing God's word with us this morning. Let us pray as we prepare our hearts and minds. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Good morning, Orange, once again. Uh, I'm Pastor Corey, the associate here, and we are continuing this series of Keep Calm and Hope On in a season where we need hope. The last time I preached on the first chapter of the book of Ruth was November 4th, 2018, and I remember that date by heart because it was my ordination sermon, and I was nervous and anxious for weeks leading up to it. I had preached it several times for my friends and families. I was submitting this sermon to be reviewed uh, by committee, and I poured over every word every story, every reference, every sentence, hoping, praying that it would be good enough. But just the day before I was supposed to preach that message, I received word that Lydia Twomley had been admitted to the hospital. And so immediately after both services on Sunday, I went straight to UNC, and Lydia wasn't quite a year old, Uh, just a few months younger than my own son, and she'd been quickly and recently diagnosed with meningitis, and she had become septic, and it was very, very scary. She's doing beautifully now. Actually, Marcella, her mom, sent me a video yesterday of her taking her first steps in her walker unassisted, and so praise be to God. But I know I've mentioned Lydia a lot in my sermons. And you see, it's because our stories are, are, are intertwined now. We are a part of one another. And I remember so vividly going to the hospital that day, going to the hospital to be with Lydia and Stephen and Marcella. And to be honest, part of me didn't want to go. I imagine none of us did. It would never have been the place we chose to go. But at the very same time, it was the only place we could go. Because in that moment, life gave us no other option. Sometimes we go places we do not want to go. And I had, we had to step into that pain. Sometimes we don't choose, but instead life chooses us in strange and unfair ways. We can't predict, like from our passage, when a famine will come upon the land, or for that matter, we can't predict when a pandemic 
will come or an illness or an accident. And we can't always predict job loss or addiction or infidelity. Those interruptions in our lives that can feel like a famine, forcing us away from the life we'd envisioned, the life we had scheduled and the life we'd structured, the life we'd planned, the life we had hoped for. You see, Elimelech had planned a life. But Elimelech, a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah, and we've all heard of Bethlehem, the name literally means house of bread. And this man of Bethlehem, Elimelech, went to live in the country of Moab. He takes his family, a wife and two sons. He is desperate because in this house of bread, in this Bethlehem, there's no bread to be found. There's a famine in the land, and they need to survive. They don't have a choice. Who would have ever foreseen a famine? The irony that in a house of bread, there is none. And this reality has forced this family, this interruption has required this family to leave the life they made and to go and create a life that they could not or were not prepared for. And yet they do indeed go. Just as Pastor Adam alluded to last week, that's what we must do. When we feel like hope is gone and yet we are still alive, we keep moving. And so Elimelech, Naomi, and their two sons, Malon and Kilion, really their, their hope for the future, they go to a foreign place to Moab. Now we know how desperate Elimelech must be uh, because Moab is a place that Israelites would never have chosen to go freely to. In fact, they were taught specifically to avoid this place. There's so much animosity in history between these two people. Dr. Ellen Davis, a scholar of Old Testament at Duke, says this of the passage. She says, to the ancient Israelite mind, Moab represented the quintessence, the most perfect example of perversion and godlessness. This, Moab, was an uncompromising place for an Israelite family with two young sons to settle. Elimelech and his family should never have been there. They should never have had to leave their home, but here we are, here they are. Any place other than Israel is unideal for an Israelite family. Because you see, in the days of the judges, which is where and when we find Ruth, this happens when the 12 tribes were governed not by a king, Saul or David, who will come later, but by judges. This era in history was characterized by tribalism, which means that all the law and order was dispensed by the family rather than by the state. So we have to make a shift in our minds that there is no support system governing. Instead, family relationships, family systems are everything. It's how it worked. If you weren't with your tribe, things could be very difficult, nearly impossible. And in this family structure, all land, all assets were given 
from the male patriarch to the male heir. And the family is a system by which those who can't support themselves, those widows and orphans and elderly, they are supported. The state doesn't assist. The family, the tribe does. That's why there's such an emphasis on helping the widow and the orphan throughout Hebrew scripture. But despite this system, this built-in attachment to land and to the tribe, Elimelech, in his desperation, leaves Bethlehem, leaves the community, leaves his tribe. Desperation makes us do things we could never have imagined, reimagined schedules and routines and even dreams. If you haven't felt some kind of desperation in these last six months, going places or lack thereof, and doing things we'd never imagined. If you haven't felt some desperation, you've either been asleep or please, please send me your recommendations. Yet, we press on. Here we are, desperate for a word of hope, and so does this family. They press on. They rearrange their lives, and they do finally settle in Moab. And when they do, they must have had some sense of hope renewed. At least they would have food in their bellies. They would learn this new land. And yet what seems like an impossible journey becomes even more desperate. When a famine seems like the worst possible thing, another tragedy, another injustice strikes. As we read in verse 3, Elimelech, The husband of Naomi died. She was left with her two sons. We don't know how or why, but this family who has endured so much already loses the anchor of this family system, the one who was desperate enough or brave enough to relocate them, to give them hope, is gone. What do they do? They keep going. They cling to hope. And we know this because in verse 4, we read that these Naomi's sons took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. Marriage is a sign of hope, a celebration. It is preparing for the future. With these relationships, with these unions, perhaps this will prove not only to sustain them presently, will secure a future, a promise of a lineage carried on, of all that Elimelech had built will be inherited. And it will provide not only security for Naomi, but for their sons and daughters-in-law and for future generations to come. But this, again, this security, this solid ground, it's also short-lived. Famine. And tragedy, and yet another disaster. Just when we think things might be okay, they begin to crumble, and Orpah and Naomi and Ruth's lives are shattered. Their lives and livelihood are flipped upside down as we read, when they lived there about 10 years, Malon and Killian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. 
Now, Naomi is a woman with little to no influence or power in a foreign land with no present source of support, no future source of support. In fact, all she has to her name now are two extra mouths to feed in her daughters-in-law who are not even technically her family anymore. For this widowed, childless woman, an Israelite living in a foreign land of Moab during the time of the judges, this is about worst case scenario. The only option she can conceive of is to return to the place she'd abandoned. Is to return trusting while feeling, as the text tells us, betrayed by God that someone might show this widow and childless woman some mercy. Her sorrow and her circumstances are so dire, she cannot bear the responsibilities of her daughters-in-law. We learn that in the Old Testament, that if a woman's husband died, then she was expected to marry his brother. And Naomi says that even if she was able to conceive a child in her womb that very night, it would prove ridiculous for Orpah and Ruth. It would be hopeless. There is no hope. The losses are far too great. And this loss secures that Naomi has no one. Orpah and Ruth are no longer bound to her. They have no obligation to remain with her. And her bitterness is suffocating. She has lost everything, and she's alone in a place that's not her home. So she tells her daughter-in-laws to abandon her, that she's not worthy of their company. In fact, she groups herself with the dead in verse 8. The life she'd envisioned is over. Her dreams are dead. She's hopeless. She believes that these two young women have more of a future apart from her than with her. Naomi knows pain. She knows what it is like to feel you cannot take one more blow. I imagine the loneliness, the shame, the fear that would accompany her long walk back to Bethlehem. The burden she would be on those whom she'd abandoned years before. I wonder if we've ever felt that kind of shame or pain or fear grip us so tightly that taking another step proved difficult. The loss of someone we love, the loss of a relationship we built, the cut of words uttered that can never be taken back, the grief of expectations not met, the pain of witnessing someone we love endure tragedy, the grieving of a future that will not be what we'd envisioned. I wonder if any of us have ever had to pick ourselves up and walk that lonely road home. How do we make it? How did we find the strength to take that step? How do we now? Naomi decides that for herself, what she thinks she must do to take that step is she's emphatic. She tells Orpah and Ruth that you will go to your homes and so will I. She will push them away. She will force them to abandon her as well. 
Yet in the midst of her bitter assurance that tragedy has sealed and defined her, that tragedy will surely be the end of her story, we witness another interruption. We witness something else we cannot anticipate, a different kind of unmet expectation, something that really shouldn't happen. In some ways, it's unfair in the best way. We read the words, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Orpah leaves, but Ruth clings. And with this but, Ruth makes a choice that will forever alter both of their lives. Ruth has no obligation to Naomi. They're no longer bound by law or by marriage or by blood. And in a system based upon familial obligation, Ruth chooses to cling to one that is not her own, a foreigner, and to walk alongside of her no matter what. She chooses Naomi. She chooses community. And in doing so, she chooses hope. The words that follow are the only words at length that Ruth will say in the entire book of Ruth. They may be familiar to you, but what she says to Naomi is this. Do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me and more as well if even death parts me from you. Where you go, I will go. Ruth clings to Naomi because in this life, in its beauty and its tragedy, it has bound them to one another. These women have been to the edge together as a community, and together they are holding one another up. And even though in the world in which they live, Naomi would have been considered forsaken. Instead, Ruth, because she's walked this path with Naomi, Ruth chooses to see her in the fullness of her personhood. She sees Naomi not as hopeless, but as worthy of love. She sees her as an extension of her own humanity, made in the image of God. Ruth cannot leave her. It's just not who she is. So she does the unexpected and she clings. And sometimes we don't have a choice. But sometimes we do. We do have a choice. Orpah doesn't stay. She chooses to leave, and we don't know the rest of her story. But Ruth chooses to stay, and we know hers. Because Ruth chooses to cling to Naomi, because out of love she chooses Naomi, because she does that, she sets into motion a story that will take us from Moab back to Bethlehem and eventually will lead us to the very first chapter of Matthew's gospel, where we discover that Ruth's choice to cling to Naomi doesn't just save Naomi. 
Her choice saves us. Because Ruth chooses to walk with Naomi, their journey leads to a man named Boaz, and Boaz and Ruth's relationship paves the lineage that will eventually lead to a manger in Bethlehem where we meet Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Ruth leads us to Jesus. She leads us to the hope of the world, and she does it in more ways than one. Ruth clings to Naomi. Ruth chooses to see this person as God's beloved, as worthy, and to see her as such regardless of how the world sees her. That that clinging, that community, that willingness to step into the pain and unknown with Naomi, that gives Naomi hope. When she cannot see her own value, Ruth does And Ruth foreshadows the kind of radical love for one another that Jesus calls us to live out through his teachings and his life. Ruth's choice to love Naomi, to be in relationship with Naomi, it saves them both and gives them a future with hope. Because they have each other, they're not alone. And church, neither are we. These last six months have made us feel hopeless and disconnected, and we may have lost our belief that we have a reason to hope. We may feel like Naomi lost to the pain of our circumstances. But we may be a Ruth right now, capable of saying to the other, you are never lost because I found you. I'm with you. I'm clinging to you. We are in this together. And that is the beauty of the gospel. Ruth shows us that we're never bound to one another out of obligation. Remember, Naomi tells her she's free to go. But Jesus, our Messiah, reveals to us that we are bound to one another because of our salvation. We are bound to each other not by blood or marriage, but because our humanity, our salvation, because Christ saves us and chooses to be in relationship as one among us. Christ connects us to each other. And we know this because Paul tells us in the letter to Romans that we're responsible for each other. We're connected to one another. We rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. We are called to cling to each other, to live out the unlimited love that Ruth displays and that Christ perfects. Never obligation. When we, by grace and by the Holy Spirit's help, when we make that choice to be in relationship, to follow, to cling to Christ, to go where Jesus goes, to lodge where Jesus lodges, to love and be in relationship with the people Jesus loves, then we begin to experience for ourselves a sense of hope and relationship that we could never have imagined. Church, because in Christ we discover something else. Our story ends a bit differently. We don't make the final promise that Ruth makes to Naomi to die where you die. Because in Christ, death is never the final word. 
Death is conquered through Jesus' resurrection, which, of course, is our greatest hope. And our choice to cling, to cling to Jesus, to follow him, while not always an easy choice, is a decision to cling to resurrection in the midst of death, to cling to hope in the midst of despair, to cling to one another in the midst of tragedy and uncertainty. We choose, like Ruth, to cling to the truth that where there is the love of God and love of one another, there is hope, there is light, and no darkness, no pandemic, no disaster, no distance, no circumstance may ever, ever overcome that. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. Please join us again next week. In the meantime, you can find us online at orangemethodist.org.